Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust and joined by Dan Wallach. Dan, some big news. The case that we've been following very closely. It's almost like a little plant that we watered and it got bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, this small story that was being covered on a local level, we jumped in and the whole world was on it. From front office sports to Yahoo to ESPN, the story of the St. Louis Rams relocation settlement became front page news. I could only imagine how big the story would have been and if it had gone to trial. And we were very, very close, Dan. But we have a special guest today, Howard Balzer, who joined us for our most popular episode in our history. But Dan, before we give it to, to Howard, overall thoughts on a high level about the settlement? Yeah, I think I'm going to need some antidepressants prescribed for me. I mean, this is so dispiriting and disappointing. I'm not even from the city. To settle 50 days out from a trial after only one day of mediation, there were a lot of pressure points that could have been applied here. The city, county, and stadium authority had won every you know legal battle, motion for summary judgment, motion to dismiss. They, they avoided the change of venue. The squeeze could have gotten even tighter, and I just can't understand for the life of me how. This is not a de minimis amount. $790 million is a substantial amount of money, but this was a case that could have very, not just very easily, but most likely have gone to trial and yielded a $2 billion plus or $1 billion plus verdict. And I, I can't understand why they didn't hold out for a team and why they settled as early as they did. There was, you know, the, the leverage wasn't disappearing here. And I know you and I had a, a little bit of a disagreement on, you know, the last final offer, settle now or we're not going to pay any money. That's, that's BS. Nobody, no lawyer worth his salt is going to fall for the oldest trick in the world. As the leverage, as the trial date approaches, and the owners have to fly into St. Louis and face the prospect of direct examination and cross-examination. That's the highest amount of leverage. And I'm convinced to this day that had the three St. Louis plaintiffs, you know, won a verdict at the trial. Yeah, you know, I know there's an appeal, but if you're sitting there holding a, a judgment of, of $2 billion, or you're actually at the courthouse steps forcing the NFL go to trial. That changes the calculus, Dan. This leaves me very underwhelmed. I know it's a lot of money, but they could have done better. I know you disagree. There was there was someone else on Twitter who said, how, how do you know that they fell for that trick? And I go, I don't know if they fell for it or not. I'm sure the NFL used that line, right? If it doesn't settle today, it's not going to settle. But then I, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how this could possibly happen, right? What would be the reason for settling something more than 30 days out from a trial when you have the leverage? So here's the end, at least from, from my vantage point, right? You have this mediation, and, and you know, I don't know how many cases settle at mediation, right? It's not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily 50-50. It's, you know, it depends really on the jurisdiction. But we had an addition, Dan, to this mediation. We had one date that was coming up. It was the end of next week. That December 3rd hearing date was essentially going to be the drop dead date for these owners to provide that personal finances. And we know, right, owners don't want to provide these personal finances. And, and we've said on a past podcast, why are they delaying providing these finances? Well, if they don't have to provide them, right, then maybe they're holding out to the last possible moment. So you'd say, why in the world? would the you know bob blitz and and the lawyers obviously did a fantastic job in the case we don't want to say that they did not but why would they potentially believe that why would their clients believe that there was no more money coming and i think there is a, a fair reading that says if the owners have to provide their personal finance and those have a risk of coming out that they're not going to have any interest the nfl is not going to contribute to any any type of settlement in shape or form yeah. stan Kroenke, whether you believed him or not said he was threatening to settle the case solo I don't think he actually would have done that. And Dan, I did want to mention this. This is more of a legal point. Then you could come back at me for what, what I said before. We never have a podcast on this, you and I. We, we meant to do it last week. And then, you know, obviously the case settled very quickly. But if Stan Kroenke had settled solo, 
essentially the case would have gone on with the NFL and it would have been, you know, St. Louis versus the NFL. The NFL then could have sued and did something called a third party action and brought Stan Kroenke in as a third party. So Kroenke wasn't getting out of the case, quote unquote, if he settled with St. Louis. He was still always going to be in the case. So that's why I never I never thought it was possible that Kroenke could settle without the NFL. And now, Dan, I'll give you back to the point that I have a feeling you'll, you'll disagree with here. I think the NFL and Kroenke were always a package deal. I think Kroenke was the only owner that provided his personal finances to the judge satisfaction here. And maybe the other owner said, listen, if we have to provide our personal finances, we're not settling with you. That's it, right? It's worth us to, to go and fight this thing. I think, Dan, the only way this makes sense, one of two things, either St. Louis never felt confident in their case if they went to trial, which I don't really buy, well, number two, they really wanted some form of a settlement, be it 30 days out or the day before trial. And they were really convinced that no additional money was coming. You can tell me I'm wrong, but that's the only reason I, I've thought about this last 48 hours. It's the only version that makes sense to me, that the NFL told them something that they really believed, the clients believed. They said this number was not going up. It was going to stay here or it was going to disappear. Now, I mean, in the end, it came down to the three-headed monster of three municipal plaintiffs run by county executive and a former treasurer who became mayor. They just looking at this as a line item or as a big chunk of money to, you know, kind of spread across their budget. They never cared about an NFL team. They just only cared about the damages and to be fair for them to, to them, they sued for money. They didn't sue for the repatriation of the Rams franchise. They sued for economic damages, but I never ever viewed that this discovery that was due on December 3rd with some, with some, you know, leverage or some, you know, great pressure point for the city of St. Louis or the NFL, because I mean, what, what was it going to tell us that Jerry Jones is rich, that he's worth like ten billion dollars? All of this stuff, let me finish. All of this stuff would be under a confidentiality stipulation anyway. It wouldn't be in public view. The revelation that these three recalcitrant owners are worth X billion or million dollars was really not the story because it wouldn't have come as a major shock to learn that people who own an NFL team are very rich. And there was never a plausible scenario, I think, for the city of St. Louis, county of St. Louis, to settle separately with Stan Kroenke, because Stan Kroenke is the ticket to punitive damages. You settle with Kroenke, and he's kind of carved out of the lawsuit, then you pretty much gut your punitive damages theory because he's the primary tortfeasor in the case. So you need to keep Kroenke in and basically pit him against the other NFL owners. It was a lost opportunity. And, you know, listen, for the city of St. Louis, for the Saint, for the for the people in that region that cling to the hope of getting an NFL team, this was your shot. This was your opportunity to have the league over a barrel facing the prospect of a multi-billion dollar damages award with admissions under oath in open court you had all of the leverage this was the one time that you could have gotten your team back instead you settled for money and there is i can't envision a set of circumstances in which the region gets an nfl team at any point within the next decade if not longer than that and it really comes down to what did the city leaders really want did they want money did they want a team and ultimately, this came down to money and money alone. And it's really disappointing. Certainly, the results of our poll, you know, my lightning poll, showed that 85% of St. Louisans or whoever voted in the survey, if you're from Hawaii, I guess you could have voted, but 85-15 against the settlement. I mean, Dan, I guess from what I'm hearing for you, you don't know and you don't have a separate theory as to why 
St. Louis changed gears. They're going full throttle, right, until settling and hitting the eject button. That's my theory. You don't have to agree with it, but uh, I don't I don't hear another theory on your end as to why they, they switched gears here and just hit the ripcord. Here's why. Look, if you look at the annual budget for the city and the county, this it's not New York City or Los Angeles. Uh, you know, $500 million injected into the city and county budget is a significant you know, line item and a significant percentage of the overall budget. It's, it's not like the gross national product of the United States. It's a much smaller, you know, city budget. And an amount like that is something that, you know, you know, bean counters that, you know, run the city and the county, that's what matters to them. They, they basically looked at the short term gain rather than what would be best for the region over the long haul. And you can't tell me that, you know, $500 million is going to have this generational impact on the city in the county, whereas an NFL team is enduring, it's perpetual, it drives economic activity around the city, tourism, shopping, taxing, taxation. It is an ongoing burst of economic activity that lasts for a generation. You know what's uh, nicer than 500, Dan? How about 600? How about 700, yeah. right? That, that's settlement money. If you're talking a billion, Dan, then then maybe you dissuade me. Right. So but this I, money but, is going to get pissed away so no, quickly I'm, and I'm, nobody will know what it went towards yeah as much as you don't agree with me i think we are on the same page that that yeah. somebody be it the attorneys or the clients i'm not saying it's necessarily the attorneys but somebody bought that there was no yeah. more money coming before january 10th somebody bought that or else the settlement that somebody doesn't... sold that i wouldn't say somebody bought it but somebody sold it to somebody and look if you're the plaintiff's attorneys if you're these two law firms there's a lot going on between now and january 10th you got to prepare for trial they probably decided they wanted to cash out. They cash out two months before they had to do the real legwork to try to get ready for trial. Believe me, you're talking about Thanksgiving holiday, Christmas holiday, New Year's Day, this slog, you know, this sort of baton death march to the trial. And, you know, that's not exactly how people want to spend their holidays. And that trial preparation would have had to have begun now. And as hard as they've worked on the case, it would have been like amplified by a multiple of two or three just to get ready for the trial. So they, they pulled the ripcord as well. And, and do you know why, Dan? They, they had 250 million reasons to pull the to ripcord. Um, yep. I'm seeing some people, there's a narrative that's now, you know, now we're about 48 hours out from the settlement. I'm seeing some people saying that they should reduce their contingency, which I don't agree with. That's, that's no, the deal. They earned it. Yeah, I think, I think they did too. Okay, and so again, we have Howard Balzer on the show. We don't want to bury Howard. Howard, Howard uh, was our most popular episode we had. Just before we, we bring on Howard, let me remind everyone, this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. If you head to themisbar.com slash condetrimental, talking about money, maybe it's not saving, uh, you know, millions of dollars, but you can save $1,000 by signing up for Themis Bar Review by heading to themisbar.com slash condetrimental. Tell them uh, we sent you. A, they'll like you a little bit more. B, we'll like you a little bit more. But C, you can save some money. Themis Bar of I've heard a lot of people listening to our Rams coverage. A lot of law students reached out who are not from St. Louis, but they were sad that this case settled because they wanted to watch it on trial. They wanted to watch the local coverage. There were some potential sourcing, Dan, that you and I might have headed to St. Louis. There is some sourcing, Dan, that you were in the United States for the first time in about a year. And maybe the next trip you would have made, instead of going from Russia to Florida, was Russia to Florida to St. Louis. But now we don't I'm, get to I'm, see I'm, that. Then. I might just go to St. Louis anyway. I've heard so many wonderful things about the city and I love good food. And the people I've met over the course of the last two months has been just been amazing. So I will make a, a vow to visit the city of St. Louis 
at least I'll try to before I go back to Russia briefly. And, and you know, even though this dispute and this saga has ended, if you really, really want the NFL to get the, to get the scrutiny that they should have received at this trial, I would advise everybody to turn your attention to the city of Oakland case. Jim Quinn, who was a prior guest on Conduct Detrimental, is representing the city of Oakland against the NFL and the other 32 teams on a parallel legal theory, the unjust enrichment breach of contract, and then on top of that, federal antitrust causes of action. He's lost in both the federal court, district court, and the state level trial court. And I have a feeling that one, if not both of those cases are going to get reversed on appeal. So at some point, Jim Quinn may take the battle on. And I think the eyes of America, certainly the eyes of St. Louis, will turn to Jim Quinn for possible retribution against the NFL. Okay, Dan, so let's do this. Let's save our, our conversation about the indemnification agreement for the end of our discussion with Howard. We'll spare him the indemnification, but we'll, we'll spend some time talking with Howard specifically about the settlement, the thoughts within St. Louis, and maybe what could have been uh, done differently. So Howard Balzer was on our show. Definitely go back to the archives. Um, again, our most popular episode. And I think it was only appropriate that we brought Howard back on. So Dan, let us kick it over to Howard Balzer. Well, our most highly downloaded episode of all time uh, certainly deserves a sequel, but I think this is going to be Godfather 2, <laughs> and it might even be more successful than Godfather 1, given how much you know, controversy this settlement agreement between the city of St. Louis, the county, and the stadium authority with the NFL has generated over the last 48 hours. So we welcome back Howard Balzer, who has really been uh, around the St. Louis pro football scene for almost his entire for the entire duration of the of the Rams franchise and, and then going back to the St. Louis Cardinals. Howard, I have to ask you, besides what, welcome to Conduct Detrimental again, what is your reaction to this settlement? I mean, let's just get that out of the way. Yeah. Pleasure to be with you guys again and uh, really uh, appreciate the platform uh, to be able to, you know, it's funny, I'll go on different radio shows and someone will ask me about it. I've gone on several this week and they'll say well what's your reaction what's this and and i say hey you, you got an hour and then i say or two when i mentioned that i did a, a podcast but the initial reaction was just i guess you can just say shock because we knew that this mediation was happening but by all indications people are weighing in and saying but you know most of the time this does not result in a resolution if it does it takes a lot of time and all of a sudden by the end of that night all of a sudden there's this settlement and one feeling of it, even though hey, I'm not living in St. Louis, but obviously I go on the radio there still. I have a lot of friends back there, know how the, the community thinks and feels. And yes, there are divergent opinions on that, but there was just, just an emptiness. And in some ways, guys, it was similar to that January 12th day in 2016 when so many from St. Louis thought that this was going to go, was going to go St. Louis's way after a, a long year of chatter and narratives and opinions and speculation and all that. And then it didn't. And it was like, wow, did we just waste a year of our lives wondering and talking about this? And that was one of the same feelings I got where our hopes were allowed to get high about the positives of what might happen. And then all of a sudden we're left with this feeling, well, okay, it's a lot of money. It's not a lot of money to the NFL. In fact, when you break it down, even if it ends up being split among the 32 teams, what is that? 
about 25 million somewhere in that neighborhood per team. That's one signing bonus to one veteran free agent each year. And so even though it's a lot of money, there's the, the overall feeling is that in a sense, I know that there's no admission of guilt when these things, when there's settlements and all that. But if the NFL figured they really had a really good case, I don't know that they would have decided to settle. So in a sense, they know deep down what happened. And yet here we come out of it with the whole, the whole point of this was that St. Louis lost an NFL team with this through whatever words you want to use through lies, through deceit, through not following the rules. We can talk about all those things. St. Louis lost an NFL team. And in my mind and in the minds of many, it shouldn't have. And now at least on the surface, we believe that, that's that who knows that that might I mean never is a long time but it's it certainly is probably not going to happen I was left with this one thought that day and I know a lot of people are probably wondering it was there a wink wink was there during this day of mediation some things said that hey play ball with us now just let's get this over with let's get beyond it and somewhere down the road things happen in the league that you know there, there's there could still be a chance but that, I, that still could be a pipe dream because I'll tell you one thing. I don't know that anybody in St. Louis wants to go through it again. I mean, you certainly don't want to go through again a Buffalo. Well, you know, we'll move to St. Louis if we don't get a stadium. And then all of a sudden people's hopes get raised. And then the team ends up staying. One thing St. Louis doesn't want to be is used and abused by other cities threatening to move there if they can't get what they want in their home city. So I guess the one word is emptiness. I'm sure a lot of people feel it, that they can't believe that in one day of mediation that this was settled for that amount of money and without anything talk, talking about a team. And then, then you hear the comment that expansion was really never on the table, which gets me back to my other point of what the feeling was like after the Rams were allowed to move when everyone thought there was a chance that the Rams would stay. Well, there was a lot of belief that a team could come out of this. And then to hear this, whether it's true or not, but if it is true that that was never really a part of any discussion or thought or possibility, then I think that makes a lot of people even more disenchanted with, with the whole thing and saying, hey, let's be done with the NFL. We don't even want to have to deal with them anymore. What strikes me as so shocking was that St. Louis had the NFL on the ropes, Howard. They yeah. were 45, 50 days away from a trial. You know, basically flying in, Roger Goodell, <laughs> Stan Kroenke, Kevin Demoff, John Merrick, Clark Hunt, who would probably drive, and have all, they say the dirty laundry, but put them under oath to get at the truth of what really happened. Because I don't think that the settlement number goes down between now and the time that the first witness is sworn into the you know, witness stand. Right. What compulsion is there 50 days out? when the mood of, of the region was to get your pound of flesh. This doesn't feel like a pound of flesh to me. This feels like, well, it's not a de minimis amount. By the time attorney's fees are, are, are taken into account and dividing the remainder between three governmental entities. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can, you know, paint a few buildings and, you know, put some fencing up around a park. But this is not going to demonstrably change St. Louis as a region, whereas getting admissions under oath, getting Jerry Jones to admit that they didn't follow the guidelines and John Mara. There was so much value in that. Why do you think the NFL was able 
to sort of pull a rabbit out of the hat 50 days out and avoid yeah. uh, the public spectacle of a trial and testifying under oath where all these horrible things are going to come out to make the NFL look really evil, you know, during a time when the public is clamoring for this. That's the question that everybody has. And it's almost impossible to know why. You'd love to hear someone from the St. Louis side come out and explain themselves. You hope that, well, and, and certainly you think that, and you made a key point, which I'll get to in a moment. Certainly we all understand the aspect of, well, you go to trial, there's no guarantee that you win. And even if you do, then there'll be appeals and that'll be strung out and strung out and strung out. But even with that, there was that whole notion that you talked about that what St. Louis, when I say St. Louis, the, the, the attorneys and everyone, what we really, we really wanted to see those guys squirm in the witness chair and have to make admissions to certain things and have them be held accountable for all of their actions during this. And that that was worth just going to trial for. And like you said, you would think you could have held out in the next 50 days and gotten a better settlement. And then you see that, mm -hmm. Part of the settlement agreement is that all the depositions and all the records and all the information gathered will be destroyed. And I know the Post-Dispatch is going to try to get as much as they can, but who knows what that will be. And my first thought when I found out about that, I couldn't help but think back to all the tapes that the NFL destroyed when the Patriots were caught red-handed for years and years of filming other teams and there are still those with the rams team of 2001 players behind the scenes coaches who absolutely believe that the patriots filmed the rams that week prior to the super bowl and and of course that was all whitewashed and then they destroyed the tapes so that's the thing that struck me when i heard that so yeah there there is no real pound of flesh if you will there's there's just this this gnawing feeling that the NFL got off really easy on this and that all we heard and all we were told about St. Louis going for the jugular just, just wasn't there. And gosh, you just hope that this wasn't about the attorneys getting their payday. Uh, you hope that that wasn't uh, the case because who knows if it goes to trial and then it's appealed. Well, who knows when you get a payday, if ever, but that would be years down the road with more money being spent. So it's just highly disappointing. And I know there are those, and I saw Dave Peacock had a tweet and others have said, well, you know, this is shown, this gives vindication to St. Louis. Well, maybe on one small level, but on the highest of levels, I just, I just don't see that it did because bottom line, once again, it'll be six years in January. You know, that's interesting. The trial was scheduled to begin two days before the six-year anniversary of the vote to allow the Rams to go back to Los Angeles. So it's been six years again without an NFL team. And that's what St. Louis, when we say St. Louis, and, and you mentioned how much, how, how much will this money really do for the region, but how much will it do for individual people who just love having the NFL and a, sport, and a team and, and all those things, plus the ancillary people who are associated with the team. And that's the essence of this whole thing, that this whole, this whole process went down and caused St. Louis to lose a valuable asset for its community. And it just seems, once again, I use the word collateral damage uh, the last time we did, and I think I they, they were just all too willing, the NFL, 
for St. Louis to be collateral damage, and they don't really care. The Post-Dispatch, Howard, as you mentioned, they obtained a lot of documents here. And in in particular, they obtained the settlement agreement, which we talked about, which shows that of that 790 million, 35% of that is going to go to the lawyers involved. That's 276.5 million. So obviously, Dan and I are lawyers. There is an expression, right? In a divorce, the only one who really wins are the lawyers. And (laughs) maybe that's the easy analysis here, right? I think Dan and I, you know, if if there is going to be leverage to kind of walk into a trial, you have all the momentum here, right? St. Louis judge, St. Louis jury, I think Dan raised the point first, right? When, as you get closer to trial, we say all the time, a lot of cases settle on the courthouse steps because you're right. afraid of, of actually going to trial and getting hit with a verdict. So I don't know what the real impetus was to settle 35 days out. I know what the reason is to settle maybe a day or two out, right? When, when you really have the NFL up against the wall. But I don't really get uh, from, you know, uh, you know, sometimes there's two, three, four mediations, right? Sometimes you have a mediation one week and a mediation the next week, so you get a little bit closer. There was a report from a friend of the show, Ben Fisher, who's at the Sports Business Journal. Really two reports that came out last week. Number one, that Stan Kroenke was threatening to settle alone. And then number two, if they didn't resolve this case at the mediation, that there would be no chance at a settlement. So, you know, I said it online and, and people can just take, take it for what it's worth. It's an expression that's used in mediations, whether or not you want to believe it is another thing. But if the case does not settle today, it's not going to settle low. We're going to go to trial. So I don't know that that's uh, at least my reading at a really high level that that is probably what happened, right? That St. Louis was told, hey, settle with us today or else we're not going to settle. And you're going to have to risk this a trial. So if you really feel worried about a trial for whatever reason, this is the time to, to settle up. So call St. Louis, call the politicians and make a call with, you, with the number that you need to settle the case today. You know, Howard, I guess my question to you on the ground, what are you hearing from people in St. Louis, right? I, I can, we could talk about our Twitter polls all the time, but what are you hearing in terms of just like, you know, disappointment, you know, ju- jubilation? I, I, I'm sensing disappointment, but you know, yes. I think you would know better than us. Yeah, well, absolutely. Certainly there are those who say, okay, you know, the one thing they say is, well, at least they hope they do something good with the money, but it's certainly not jubilation. I think there is a certain amount of feeling. We'll see, hey, this, this does acknowledge that, you know, acknowledge some wrongdoing here when it is that amount of money. And there's never going to be 100% of the people who think the same. So, so there are those who say, hey, this is just the NFL and that's, that's just the way it is. But this, I think o- overwhelming, it's disappointment. Even if people never believe that St. Louis is really going to get a team out of it, they still, I think, felt that it would be more than $790 million, especially if Kroenke was supposedly willing to settle for what he did separately. Well, then couldn't you go to the league and even get more on top of what he, he was going to pay if supposedly there was going to be between $500 and $750 million? So there's just so many unanswered questions with this. And I understand throughout it all, the attorneys and everyone, they, they can't say a word about anything. Seems to me you can talk now and at least explain to a region why this was done. Because I, I think the community is owed that. But yeah, I think overall, it's just, it's just total disappointment. And for those who really believe there was a chance to get a team, they, they just can't believe. You know, I, I've used the word capitulate, and, and it sure seemed that that was the case. And, and even if it's said to you, and then you guys know this better than anything, even if they say, well, if you don't settle today, then we're not going to settle. Well, we've been told all along that they'd be perfectly happy to go to trial because they want this out there. They feel not only they have a good chance to win, but just to get all this 
evidence out there of all the things that happened, all the things that went on that some people know here and there in bits and pieces. And I know we went into them a lot during the last podcast, but just the things that were that were said, you know, about St. Louis. And even though that's not really germane to the argument, but you know, the <laughs> the ATF, was it the ATM letter and all those things and the thing that Kevin Demoff consistently criticized the city. I have to tell this one side story because I didn't tell it the last time. And it kind of gives an idea of the character or lack thereof of the people. In an August meeting in suburban Chicago in 2015, it happened to be taking place on right around the anniversary, the one year anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. So this meeting was right around the anniversary, and there were some protests. There was a commemoration of the one year in St. Louis, and there were some things that admittedly got out of hand. It wasn't nearly what it was the year before, but it was out of hand. And I have it on good authority by someone I'm very close to in the league who covers the league that he was having a conversation with Kevin Demoff, who said to him, wow, St. Louis, another day another riot. And when I heard, I said, are you, and and there were other things that he said about St. Louis. And so that's a big part of it that really has St. Louis so disappointed in all this is that it wasn't only that they wanted Stan Kroenke's money in Los Angeles, but it was a way that where they were enriched. I mean, Hey, it might not be what it was in LA, but they did pretty darn well in St. Louis for a lot of years and to denigrate a city on the way out the door, the way they did is just, to me, is reprehensible. And I'll never forget that. And a lot of people never will. And again, I know that that doesn't really pertain to the whole business aspect of this, but it was really bad. But yeah, it's, it's disappointing. The one hope I have, the one hope overall, is that perhaps, perhaps this sends a little bit of a message that when this comes up again, and it will at some point, with a team in the league or whatever, that another city will be treated a lot better than St. Louis was. And they realize they just can't be so cavalier in the way they treat cities and the people that live there, because people who live there are potential fans, obviously. Even if you don't have a team, there's potential fans. And they've turned off a lot of people in St. Louis from the National Football League. So I think, Howard, you'll appreciate this analogy here. The St. Louis Cardinals obviously just signed Stephen Matz from, uh, again, I, Dan and I are originally from New York. So Steve Cohn, owner of the Mets, went on Twitter, and he made a comment that essentially indicated that he wanted Stephen Matz, right? He goes, that was un- underhanded, uh, whatever he said about an agent, you know, uh, whatever it was. But he made the indication that he wanted Stephen Matz. So at least in, in New York circles, I think uh, Cohn doesn't look so good because you're the owner, you control the pocketbook, and it looks like you wanted a guy. Now, now, hear me out for a second. I'm, I'm seeing on Twitter, there's maybe, I don't know, 60, 40, 50, 50, right around there, people that wanted an expansion team versus people that did not. I'm of the opinion that if the city of St. Louis, the politicians, wanted an expansion team, they could have made that indispensable to any type of deal. The only reason it's a quote-unquote pipe dream is because it doesn't seem like the lawyers involved made that an indispensable part of that settlement. If it wasn't significantly talked about at these mediations, that's because there was a conscious decision on some part of the lawyers. So 
hear me out. This is my uh, my tinfoil hat theory. Dan Dan likes when I well I don't know if Dan likes it, but I I tend to do it. You know, I, I read all the reports, right? Dan and I kind of mapped it out, and and a lot of people did that. If you are talking it about a case in the billions of dollars, which they clearly were, because they settled at eight hundred million, so obviously billions were discussed, right? If you were talking about billions, certainly it makes sense to at least float expansion because it's economically it makes sense, right? Why why would you want to pay billions when you could just hand St. Louis team and give them a couple, you know, a hundred million, right? And there's there's probably a middle ground. Now, Howard, there's the world, and, and you just said it, it articulated beautifully. And maybe politicians, maybe they, they know it better than, than fans even do directly. Maybe there was such a bad taste that they actually went into this not wanting an expansion team. And all the press reports, right, from ESPNs and Sports Business Journal, everyone's saying that's, that expansion wasn't significantly discussed. Again, if, I think if they wanted to say, hey, NFL, you really want to avoid a public trial? Okay, you, you really want to, not, all these lies not to come out? The expansion team is a requirement of this settlement. It certainly was capable. So I guess my, my theory to you, Howard, and, and uh, you, can, you know better than I in St. Louis, I think the messaging coming out from this is to say, hey, in no reports, we want to say that we even discussed expansion. Because if we say we wanted it and we say that it was involved in the negotiations and we didn't end up with it, it will actually make us look worse, just like Steve Cohn is looking worse now for wanting Stephen Matz and not getting him. So if they say, oh, we didn't, we didn't actually ever talk about expansion, that's almost a way to say, well, we, we wanted money and we got money. What do you think about my uh, very complex tinfoil hat theory here? Well, it, it very well could be. And the thing I'll add and, and not counter it necessarily, but just throw out a kind of alternative explanation is everything we were led to believe was that this was what the attorneys and everyone were arguing for. And that supposedly there had been talks of expansion. And that, that came from the people who supposedly knew that settlement offers are being an expansion team is part of it. So that's what, again, raised a certain number of people's hopes that that was out there. Now, maybe, Dan, to what you said earlier in terms of the NFL side saying, if you don't settle today, then there's not going to be a settlement. They might have made it very clear that expansion, there will not be a team associated with this. I don't, we don't know that they said that. But that could have been possible also, uh, because, it, like I said, it was certainly all of our understanding that St. Louis wanted a team and money uh, to go along with it, because they felt, as you said earlier, Dan, that uh, that they had the league kind of against the wall. So that's what that's what makes all this. You just wonder. Uh, but that's what did give me that one little, I guess, shred of wondering yeah. that was there some kind of wink, wink. Was there, you know, some some kind of thing said that, hey, roll with us here and they're not going to guarantee it, obviously. But of course, then you say, well, why should we trust you? But that it just seems a little fishy. Coming out of this settlement, the messaging is clear. Let's tell everybody that we didn't talk about expansion. Right. I, I can see it both ways that they had right. the discussions. They didn't work it out. But the messaging is crystal clear. It's undisputed, at least in these press reports. Hey, we weren't even close on expansion, but. I heard the same reports you did. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can't really make sense of it other than, you know, that they right. want that to be the messaging coming out of it. Howard, here's why a, a wink wink is not going to work in real life. You know, prior oral representations, right? Those merge into the written agreement. Right. And they're not worth, they're not even on paper, but they're just worthless because the entire agreement, the written agreement is the agreement. And any subsequent attempt to say, well, you know, we were assured of this will never, ever hold up. I want to put you into the mindset of 
Roger Goodell, the other owners, you've been around the league pretty much longer than anyone we've talked to about this controversy. Let's hypothetically look forward and in an alternative universe. There's a trial, St. Louis wins on its primary claims, third party beneficiary, the disgorgement of the relocation fee and the awarding as ill-gotten gains, the increase in the value of the franchise, punitive damages awarded, a St. Louis jury awards the three St. Louis municipal plaintiffs $3.2 billion following a you know an eight-week jury trial. At that point, how likely do you think it is that an NFL team returning to St. Louis becomes a reality? Because I think that's the play, not the demand for it before you get a verdict. Right. Well, that makes sense. You know, that, that certainly makes sense uh, from that level. And that's presuming that even the NFL at that point wouldn't say, even now that even that they lost, that yeah. they feel that, and we know they've believed this all along, that there's kind of a, quote, home field advantage here, and that they would then just appeal and figure that in a different court, in a different courtroom, they would potentially get a different result. And so I guess, as you know, I mean, you guys probably deal with this all the time. I mean, th- those are always the risks yeah. from of either side, you know, going to trial. But but certainly, I mean, th- this has taken, what, four years? I mean, who knows how long it would take for even an appeal to begin to be heard. And now you're going through it all and continuing to go through it. When you're holding a $3 billion judgment, four years will go by in a blink of an eye. <laughs> uh, you know, we've intimated that maybe the lawyers wanted to get paid, but I want to point to another factor here and maybe ask for some insight on your knowledge of St. Louis politics. There are three governmental plaintiffs here. There's the county of St. Louis, the city of St. Louis, and for lack of a more precise description, the stadium authority. They have budgets. They have annual budgets. Were they, from what you understand about politics in St. Louis, do you think they were ever really focused on a team? Obviously, we know now not, but put us into the mindset of how some of the political leaders in St. Louis think. Uh, first of all, do you know the mayor? Do you know the county executive? What do you think went on behind the scenes based upon you know living in St. Louis for so long? Well, that's a really good question because there is this city-county divide to begin with. And they've been trying for years and years, decades, at somehow coming up with a solution to bring the entities together for the benefit of the entire region. And they've never been able to do it. So, you know, what was it those sides that were saying, we don't want expansion? Did one want it and one didn't? I mean, who knows? I mean, there could be a variety of things there. You know, let's remember too, the county, the odd thing here is the county was a big part of what got the dome built or the extension of the convention center built to begin with in terms of, and that was the one thing that had a public vote and the county was a big part of that. The county was not a part for whatever reason at the time of the push for a new stadium. It was gonna be the city coming up with public financing, but not from, not from the county. And so that again, just points to this, whatever word you wanna to use to describe you know, that relationship. And so, yeah, it, it could very well be that the attorneys and all of them, they were the ones who were pushing for expansion, expansion, we want this, but the city, county, whatever it is, say, no, let's, let's just take the money and run. We can't trust these people, you know, whatever, whatever it might've been. And let's get whatever, as much money as we possibly can to do whatever with. There's also an interesting thing going on too. And it's been kind of delayed by the pandemic and all that, but 
even after the Rams left, there's been a plan in place to renovate the dome and the convention center to bring it up to standard with other cities around the country. And that's going to be a pretty expensive proposition. From what I know, or from what I believe I know, there hasn't been a, a total plan put forward yet. And this is what it's going to cost and all those things. So they could, they could be looking at it that way and say, hey, we've, we've got to do something with the convention center. And this would be a great thing to put the money toward that would help in that way, because they were all wondering, how are we going to get the money to do this? So at the end of the day, that could be very well what ends up happening to that, whatever, what it'll end up being, what a little over $500 million. Yeah. I mean, some of your colleagues in the media, not all of them, but they're trumpeting this as a big victory for St. Louis. And it's going to change the way the NFL deals with teams in the future, you know, vulnerable franchises such as Buffalo and Jacksonville. But if the NFL could buy its way out of a lawsuit each and every time, <laughs> yeah. what do you see as the next steps, you know, going forward for other cities? First of all, is the NFL going to change its relocation policy? And we've got city of Oakland on deck. So what is the future of the NFL's relocation policy? I don't think it, it, it helps St. Louisans, but where does the league go from here? Because this is a recurring issue. No, it, it definitely is. And it, it will be interesting what they do with those relocation rules, which they kept trying to say, or, well, they're just the guidelines. They're just this, they're just that. And then as, as you guys, when you came up with all the documentation from the council of mayors and, and all those things, but, you know, as we mentioned in the last podcast, they, those rules were formulated originally uh, when the Raiders sued the NFL. So I, I don't know how you could somehow get away with, I guess you could change them, but I don't know what you could change them to because they are pretty forthright and basic in what a team has to do to show that they should be, you know, approved to vote. And it's just, it's just wild here that St. Louis now in terms of being victimized in some ways twice, the first time, granted, St. Louis didn't have a stadium, but Phoenix didn't either. <laughs> and they didn't get one for 20, for two decades. And so, so St. Louis loses one time to a city that didn't even have a stadium and then loses one time when they stepped up and had a stadium plan, but that wasn't deemed good enough. So it does send a message to other cities. Hey, suppose we come up with a heck of a deal with the stadium, but the, but the owner says, no, it's not good enough. And the league said, oh, it's not good enough. Maybe that's, if anything, they should probably be strengthened in that area to, I don't know how you specify that in terms of a stadium plan, because a lot of it, I guess, can be subjective, so to speak. But boy, I, you'd hate to see those done away with, because that's what protects cities. And so if a team wanted to move, okay, just go then that could really lead to, to a lot of, you know, a lot of craziness, but you know, I, I, I don't, this, this was a unique situation in a lot of ways. And with all, all the stadiums that have been built, you, you just don't see a run on teams uh, looking to leave, but you never know. You never know what might happen. There's a, there's a lot of years left in eternity, if you will. <laughs> yeah, by comparison, you know, you know, the league has become very relocation oriented, but when Pete Rozelle was the commissioner, I mean, I read all of those congressional transcripts and hearings back in the 80s. Roselle like, would, would bring lawsuits to stop Leonard Toes uh, moving the Philadelphia Eagles to Arizona. They sued the Oakland Raiders. The NFL seemed to have sort of a moral compass about keeping teams in the home market. What changed over the years? New ownership, new owners that were just trying to you know, squeeze every last dime? Why did the league change its attitude on relocation? That's, you know, when you think about it, 
they, I mean, heck, the Colts left in the, you know, the dead of night. The Browns, they replaced them. And there hasn't been all that much relocation in recent years. So, and they always say it though. They always say that their goal is to strengthen the teams in the, in the communities where they are, and they don't want to have teams relocating. But then again, they also know that the threat of relocating is what normally ends up getting stadiums built and whether or, you know, getting public money, you know, for those stadiums, you know, this, this whole situation was unique in several ways because the one thing we know in California, especially there's virtually no chance to get public money. That was certainly a part of it in San Diego it was a part of it in Oakland, San Francisco built a stadium with virtually, I don't think there was any public money there. And then of course we have, we have the Rams situation. So that's what made this somewhat unique when what's I'm trying to think what's the most recent stadium was Minnesota. Has there been one since oh, Las Vegas, of course, and that was a relocation obviously, but there was a lot of public money there. And in Minnesota, there was a significant amount of public money. And so when, when you have that availability, then it helps those cities stay where they are. And they, I, I think they still have that feeling that they like teams to stay, but this was unique because they wanted a team in LA or two, and some didn't think they should have two, but this was the, they felt the most lucrative way to ha- have it happen, even though, once again, we go back to the whole point that the committee recommended the, the site in Carson for both, uh, the, both the Chargers and the Raiders. And so, so here we have it now. Mm-hmm. San Diego doesn't have a team. Oakland doesn't have a team. St. Louis doesn't have a team. But L.A. has two, and they have, they have a hard time supporting the Chargers. So you mentioned it's the most lucrative way. And I think that's, you know, and Dan and I will talk about it as well. But I think at a certain point, you know, would you if you gave Stan Kroenke this option, you know, four years ago, you know, maybe five, six years ago, Stan, would you pay some percentage, right, some significant percentage of $790 million to move and move to L.A.? And, and Kroenke in his head is probably thinking, well, if I move from St. Louis to L.A., I'm probably making billions. So I have to pay some portion of $790 million. He, you know, you probably, uh, he probably signs up for it. So, you know, there was a couple things like, so I think the actual monetary amount, and we, we're kind of beating around the bush, right? St. Louisans are not going to see that money directly. It's going to go right. to the politicians and you're going to have to trust them, right? So that, at least in my rough party list, is somewhere five, six or seven, right? Putting Stan Kroenke through the ringer, you know, getting some expansion team, you know, having this public trial, setting a, a real precedent to prevent teams from moving. Those are the things that really fans cared about. And then, now, this is where lawyers sometimes get a bad, bad rap, and sometimes it's true, right? You sign up for the case on a contingency. You, get, you sign up for 35% of the ultimate award. And that's why clients, if they can, I have clients that come in the door, and they always they, they know what a contingency is. They come in, they say, hey, will you do a contingency with me? So, you know, I, lawyers sometimes will do it, but it really has to justify your cost on the case. So for four years, right. the lawyers in this case didn't make a buck. And they said, you know what, if we make some money, we'll take 35% of that. And, and in theory, that sounds fair. Now, once everything plays out, right, I don't think there's a world where they've put in $250 million worth of time on this case, if that's the payout. So if you're going through this from, I can just tell you from the legal perspective, right, anytime an offer is being made to me. So let's say, for example, I, I demand a billion dollars. When I make that demand, I'm doing it knowing that I'm getting 350 million. So, you know, we can have the calculus and what did St. Louis fans want out of this, right? What did St. Louisans want out of this? But there's a balancing act. So 
Maybe the attorneys wanted something a little bit different, but that's, you know, we could talk about what the fans wanted, but the fans aren't the client here. It's the government and it's the attorneys. So, you know, I don't know if it's as much of a question, just kind of like a the comment, right? Dan and I always spoke about the fact that there was a contingency here, that it kind of made it a little messy. Mm -hmm. If an expansion team right. was wanted, lawyers don't get paid in expansion teams, right? Unless the client really wants it, um, unless it's somehow written into the retainer that there's some kind of bonus structure if you get an expansion team. But I haven't heard anything like that. It's certainly not in the settlement agreement. We're not going to see the retainer in here, obviously. But, you know, that's, I think, the hard thing for fans to to come to grips with. And lawyers are getting a bad rap here. So I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that, Howard? But the, the, well, the that's an interesting blowback. point. No, that, that's an interesting point, because one of the things that I consistently heard, at least in the last few months, is that they want a team and money. And I'm sure that might have been on the part of the attorneys, because, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to say that we just spent four years on this. And then if there's a team... And if there was any money, it would go towards perhaps helping with the stadium or or whatever it might be. But yeah, if you're not going to come out of it with anything, then where, where you know where where would the money come from? You'd have you'd have to get paid something. And the lawyers and never spoke to the media here. They were very quiet. No, I know, maybe may purposefully, right? Now we're playing Monday morning. It was morning. a gag order. It was a gag order in the case. Well, I mean, Dan, I mean, you, there's certainly a gag order, but there's certain rep reports that could flow out. And I and I think that there were reports being given from the NFL side, which we know, right? There were certain, St. Kroenke obviously floated his valuation between 500, 750 million. And I didn't think we heard any type of secondary sourcing. Hey, I'm hearing from people that they're trying to get a team, not trying to get a team. So certainly there's a gag order, but then there's the quote unquote ways to get around the gag order. But Howard, yeah. <laughs> Not really yeah, when a judge is going to <laughs> sanction you, but it's okay if you think you know you what, want Dan. To you know what? Also, you have to comply with discovery unless you're NFL owners. Even if a judge tells you to, if you're an NFL owner, it certainly doesn't matter because that's exactly what we have here. <laughs> but no, but like I said, you do raise a point is that if the settlement is a team, then how do the attorneys get paid? And like you said, they probably didn't spend 276 million, but they certainly spent a whole lot of money on this, unless, like you said, there would be if that was part of the, the settlement that there would be, you know, some kind of thing that the attorneys would get, would get at least their fees from it all. But again, we don't know that if that was ever even attempted to be negotiated. Yeah. I've got, I've got a question for you, but, but I want to play that hypothetical that you just raised about how do the attorneys get paid? I think it's easy. If you're sitting at the end of the trial, holding a $2 billion, $3 billion judgment, the settlement is give us a team, give us some damages, and pay the lawyers $275 million and putting them exactly in the same place as they would have been 50 days prior to the trial. So there are ways to create a, a fund in which to pay the lawyer's fees. It's just for the city, the county, and the stadium authority, the question is, what would you rather have? You know, money in your budget? Or do you want to have a new team? And, you know, it's certainly not lost on me that the mayor of St. Louis served as the treasurer for the city yes. of St. Louis eight years for a period of eight years before she became the mayor. So, you know, where, he, where, where her mind is at in terms of looking at this as sort of a line item in a budget rather than the collective soul of a region. So turning to the next obvious question is where does St. Louis go from here in terms of, uh, you know, realizing the dreams of maybe one day having an NFL team if they want one? Who knows? Who knows where you go? But right now, it's just getting over it and just moving forward. That's all that people can do. And if, if something would happen down the road, I guess you look at it. Like you said, even if there's a wink-wink, that brings no assurances. But then, even if something like that would happen, then comes the point, well, how do you, again, how do you pay for it? Is the city going to be willing to, to spend X billion, X millions of dollars on building a stadium? Do they figure out a way 
if there is money in the renovation of the dome, that that would bring it up to standard to possibly even play there. But then that would be more than you'd be really risking a lot of money there that might never end up coming to fruition. So you almost have to go into this and just figure, hey, the dream's over. And if something happens down the road that makes a chance for that dream to come true again, hey, we'll, we'll reconsider it. But it's awful hard to have any hope after you've been burned so many times. You mentioned that the city of St. Louis, the, the, the county of the city might have reservations about doing business with the NFL, but what about the reciprocal aspect of that? Being burned by an $800 million settlement and having being dragged into, into an unfriendly forum, would the NFL ever want to do business with St. Louis during the lifetimes of the current owners who bore most of the brunt of the, the anger? That's a great question. I know it's been brought up in different places I've read that 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 would probably be against St. Louis in the future, which kind of rubs some people the wrong way. I said, oh, you're going to get mad at St. Louis for having been wronged, having been lied to, you know, having had an actionable plan for a stadium, and that wasn't deemed good enough. And then you're going to get mad that they tried to call you on that. I mean, what what was St. Louis supposed to just sit back and say, well, okay, you know, (laughs) where, where would they be? So, but the NFL probably would think like that. It's, it's kind of a little counterintuitive to me for them to do that, but you can understand why maybe, maybe some of them will. But, the, but another point is, like you said, who knows how many of these owners now are owners are still going to be owners in five years, in 10 years. Commissioner's probably not going to be the commissioner. So, you know, who, who knows what happens down the road? But, you know, right now you just have to look at it for what it is. And, and that's just right back where you were six year, almost six years ago with just a little bit more money for the politicians to figure out what to do with it. Congress is beginning to poke its nose into the affairs of the NFL vis-a-vis the Washington football team investigation. Do you think there's a role for Congress to play here in the relocation area? I mean, there have been pieces of proposed legislation introduced to create congressional or federal standards and maybe have it decided by an independent arbitrator. If this this merry-go-round is never going to come to an end, do you think there's a place for Congress to get involved here and maybe provide some assurances and some, you know, recourse to, you know, scorn cities in the future? Yeah, I think there probably is. And maybe there should be. I think you can make an argument for that because that's, you know, that's protecting the citizens. That's what <laughs> ostensibly Congress is there is there to do. And I think it might be interesting to see what, what see if anybody there says anything about, you know, what happened here and, 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 you know, and those things. So yeah, I, I think they're probably, now what they could really do about it, I don't know. They probably should be taking a hard look at, at some of the way these decisions are made and what happens. But, you know, of course they do in a certain way that, hey, these are individual teams and they, they do what they're going to do. But I've always, I, I've always felt that when it said, well, it's a business, it's a business. Well, yeah, sports is a business. There's no question about it. But it's a kind of unique business. There's not too many other businesses that, put the name of the city on their business. Yeah, there might be someone who calls himself the St. Louis Wing Company or something like that, but everyone knows that's just a name for, for, for you know, to buy chicken wings. It's a whole lot different when you have a team that represents a city and has the city name on it. To me, that makes it somewhat different. And yeah, I, I, I think it's something that Congress probably should look at. Whether they ever will do, I guess we'll have to wait and see. On our last broadcast, I've always been intrigued by the story of how the New England Patriots almost ended up in St. Louis and the role that James Orthwine played and, and uh, you know, Robert Kraft in securing, you know, sort of a, a lease stranglehold around the team. How close was that ever coming to realization? Because it would have changed the history 
yeah. of the National Football League. Tom Brady, the <laughs> king of St. Louis. Can you can you provide some color and some detail around that? That, that was always such a it, – it's one of the things of all of this that always seemed to be a kind of convoluted thing. And that the mayor of St. Louis at the time, Vince Shamel, that was involved in it. And there was there was just so many weird things, you know, happening around it. But just the fact that Orthman was going to be the owner of the St. Louis team, an expansion team, and then he walked away from that. And then all of a sudden, this Patriots and and then Robert Kraft emerges in the whole situation. And at one point, they were talking about building the stadium in Hartford, and yep. and and then they, you know, finally were able to get it done, and you know, in Foxborough. So. That that was a strange one, though. So so that to really wonder how close it truly was, I don't know. I'm I'm not really sure how close it ever truly was. But I I guess though you can make the if, if Robert Kraft hadn't emerged from this, perhaps it would have happened. Perhaps it would have because th- there are no reports or no anecdotes or no stories about how someone else was thinking of doing something similar to Robert Kraft. Now, if all of a sudden he hadn't come come through. And then it was really getting close and it looked like it might happen. Then we still don't know what would have happened had the league, when the league get involved and could there have been some, you know, you have to go through the whole relocation situation and all those things once again, and leaving that area, you know, that the NFL wouldn't have wanted to do. So, like I said, I'm not truly sure how close it ever was, but you certainly could reach the conclusion that it might've happened had Robert Kraft not, come out of the woodwork to save it. Can you imagine St. Louis legend Bill Parcells? <laughs> <laughs> so the history of football in St. Louis is so steeped in urban legend and a lot of you know crazy stories and cons and people emerging as sort of white knights and then not living up to it. There's a book in here somewhere. Have you ever given thought to writing a book about the history of St. Louis football and telling all these stories? Because if anyone can do it, you're probably the only one who well, could really lay it all out there. Well, it's funny you ask that because it was one of my first thoughts the other day when this finished, uh, because I had thought of an idea of doing a book back and, and actually had someone talk to some publishers for me after the Rams left. And the first reaction was, well, it's St. Louis. And, you know, you, you kind of always get that. It's St. Louis. How much would people have an interest in St. Louis? And I then put together a little more of an outline for the publisher to take back to some of these people to explain that this is more than about St. Louis. And I said, it would track all of the relocations and how one thing led to the next and then the next and then the next and all, all these different things. But St. Louis obviously involved Phoenix and St. Louis involved the Rams twice, obviously getting the Rams originally and then going back to Los Angeles by talking, bringing in other relocations around it. I mean, how many cities haven't been touched by it? Indianapolis, Baltimore, Oakland, Las Vegas, San Diego. Uh, am I missing any here? You know, pro- probably, uh, you know, uh, Houston, uh, Tennessee. So I think it would be fascinating. Now, you know, a certain number of people would probably be bored by it all, but I think, I think it, would, it, it would be pretty interesting, especially with some of those stories like you mentioned, take, take an awful lot of research. But I had thought of it then, like I said, but then there had been a little right at the time when it was going back and kind of expanding on the outline and all that, the lawsuit was filed. And once that happened, that pretty much put an end to being able to do a book while this was going on, because you're never going to get anybody to talk about it. 
Now, of course, it's all fair game. And so that might be something that gets onto the, the docket there because it would, yeah. it, would be a, it would be a heck of a project. Get a co-author, you know, and maybe they maybe shoulder the load a little bit. I had thought of that, too. Undertaking. Can I ask, Howard, in terms of St. Louis history, a lot of people, at least in my replies, kept making the joke that they don't trust St. Louis politicians because of this whole trolley business. Can you <laughs> shed some light on what, what they're talking about with the trolley system? I, the loop trolley, uh, people kept saying loop trolleys. I, I did a little bit of digging, but I figured you'd have some more insight on it. Yeah, there, it's it's kind of, it's on a lot of people's minds because it's somewhat recent. You can probably come up over the last 40, 50 years with a whole lot of stories about the different things that were botched. But there was this whole trolley that was going to be in the loop. And it's a, it's a kind of nice area in St. Louis that has a bunch of shops and restaurants. And it's, it's basically one street. And it, it extends probably maybe, I, I might be a little off on this, but it's no more than a mile or two uh, to get from one end of it to the other. And so there was this idea to have a trolley. And this was going to be the great thing to get people going back and forth and you could get from one spot to another and you wouldn't have to walk and, you know, and this and that. And you, so if you had to park somewhere and, and it was further away from where you want to go, boop, jump on the trolley and go a few blocks. So I don't recall how much money was spent on it. But the bottom line is it tried to get off the ground and it never happened. So it doesn't exist. Okay. No, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And so I think in the scheme of things, it wasn't ridiculous amount of money, but it was just an example of something that has this grandiose idea, you know, that never happened. So people refer to it because it's fresh in their mind. And it it was probably just within the last, I want to say maybe two to four years. I forget. You know, it's always funny when you try to remember when something happened and you're not totally sure. I always say, if you think how many years ago it was, double it. Because if you say, well, I think it was two to three years ago, and then you look it up and you find out it was like four to six, you know, or something like that. It's always a lot longer ago than you think it was. But whatever it was, it is, it is still fresh in a lot of people's minds. I'll disagree with one thing you said, Howard, then I'll turn it over to my, to my friend Dan. You know, I'm from New York. I have never heard somebody say, Nobody cares at St. Louis. St. Louis is a major city, which, you know, I'm a hockey fan. I'm a baseball fan. St. Louis is a, is a major city. And obviously, as evidenced by this particular story, people were turned on to it. And people were turned on to the fact that the NFL kind of wronged a major city. So, you know, obviously, when you settle a case for $790 million in the releases, they'll, they'll never accept culpability. They'll never, they'll never say, hey, right. this is an admission of guilt. But I, I think your reading of it is correct. You don't pay $800 million unless you unless you don't really love your chances at trial. That said, you don't settle a case for 800 million if billions are on the table, if you don't feel so confident as the city of St. Louis bringing the case. So I, I think there's a story to be written here. And uh, if you need some uh, legal consultants, cer- certainly you have two of them right here. We're happy to help. Well, let me make clear. I wasn't saying that no one cares. These were the these were the book public, you know, book publishers and book people. Well, they're were- wrong. They're wrong. Yeah, I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying they, they weren't they weren't or they are, but that's you know there there is a certain perception you know out there that and and I wonder too you know some have asked me on radio shows I've gone on about around the country in NFL cities. I think a lot of people saw that and say, oh, St. Louis got 790 million, good for them. But I don't know how many how many people really spend a lot of time on it. That didn't get a lot of coverage in the national media for the most part prior to the settlement, and so. You know, I, I, I think people get kind of get into their cocoons a little bit. It doesn't, and I'm, again, I don't want to speak too generally, but the question for a book publisher, obviously, is are you going to sell enough books uh, to make this 
worthwhile. Now you can always self-publish, but that can always be a possibility too. But pu- publishers are looking, they don't, they don't want to lose money either. So a lot of times they look for reasons not to do something instead of reasons to do something. Well, Howard, before we you know, close out, and, and I want to ask you about the Arizona Cardinals site that you, you run for Sports Illustrated. I've never been in the room when a Pro Football Hall of Fame vote is taken. So this is my one and only time to be in the room with a Hall of Fame voter. <laughs> I've been, for the last 20 years, I've argued with anybody who will listen that, and I'm a Giants fan that lived through the, you know, Parcells and Belichick era, LT 81 to 90. Do either of Phil Sims, Carl Banks, or Mark Bavaro belong in the Hall of Fame? And I could make a strong case for each one of them. Bavaro was the signature tight end. One of the signature tight ends of his era, injuries obviously tripped him up. He, you know, tore his knee. Each one of those were just signature players for the Giants franchise. Do you see a Hall of Fame possibility for any of them? It is such. It is so difficult because I hear, and we all hear on the committee, from people like yourself who are very passionate about their favorite guys and saying this guy is deserving. And it's just so hard to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. From that group, the one guy that I have at least felt strongly about is Bavaro. And the problem with him up to, to, to a certain degree is he didn't have ridiculous numbers in receptions, but the guy was just a killer blocker. It was funny. I remember one Super Bowl, I forget when it was, that someone asked Bill Belichick, and I think it might have been a year that Bavaro was becoming eligible, and I think it might have been a writer from New York who asked him about Bavaro. And he used to say just, man, the guy was just, he was a Hall of Famer in practice in just the way that he approached the game. And he had incredible accolades for Bavaro. But I'll tell you, you know, just earlier this week, they announced the 26 semifinalists for this year. And you see from that group, you say only five are going to get in. And in every town, you know, in Cincinnati, they say, what about Ken Anderson? What about Boomer Esiason? What about Ken Riley? Uh, and, you know, it took Drew Pearson decades uh, to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's just so hard and such a difficult process yeah. that sometimes guys fall through the cracks. And there's certain, certain guys, there's not that much difference between guys that are in and guys that aren't. But it's just the nature of the process that some guy, you know, there's, there's Simeon Rice. Mm-hmm. There, there, and I asked a few guys in the Buccaneers about this. Derek Brooks, for example, and even Warren Sapp, and they say that they became the defense that they were as good as they were already. They became the defense they were when Simeon Rice got there as a pass rusher, and it opened up opportunities for Warren Sapp, and he got a bunch of sacks himself. And they all talk about that. And he's been a semifinalist a couple times. One time, one year he isn't. One year he is. And so there's just so many of those type of guys that, quote, fall through the cracks. And it's, it's, it's just tough. How important is it to have the right advocate in the room? I've, I've you know, read you know, the stories about Peter King making impassioned speeches on behalf of certain players. How important of a role does the right sponsor or advocate play? And has anyone stepped up for Mark Bavaro in that room where the votes are, are, are taken to make that kind of a speech? See, here's the problem. Bavaro's never made it to the room. And that's one of the problems is that we start out with a list of 120 nominees and then we all vote for 25 and there's not 
and I, I've, I've advocated for this and suggested it, especially now that we've all become so, yeah, so and that not enamored with, but so comfortable with Zoom, and that's where we've had our Hall of Fame meeting uh, last year, and we're going to have it by Zoom again this year. I said, why don't we have a Zoom meeting before we vote for the semifinalists, mm-hmm. and and have different people maybe have some guys that they think, hey, everyone, take a little longer look at this guy's record. Discuss some players there. And it doesn't have to be all in one day. And I think that would be a real positive because the only way to get in the room and really be discussed is to make it to the final 15. Once you do that, yes, the presentation can help, but it's not just one. Here's the thing, just so people understand with this meeting, the presenter has five minutes to make his case. That's it five minutes to make his case. Then it's opened up to discussion. And a lot of times those discussions take 15, 20. There's been some that have taken as long as an hour. Not a lot, but every once in a while they do. So it's all those discussions in total certainly have a lot to do with it. But the initial presentation helps, but it's not the be all and end all, even though that's the perception that many have. And and the reality is once you become a finalist, eventually you're probably going to get in. Eventually, you're going to get in. Not everyone, but most will get in. The key is making it that far. And that's the hardest thing of all. Well, who's the Bernard King of the NFL in your book? Who, you know, he waited a long time to get into the uh, you know, Basketball Hall of Fame. Who's the one football player that you feel has been overlooked that should be in the Hall of Fame if you could pick just one? Or you could pick more than one. I mentioned a guy like Ken Anderson. And that's when it jumps out to me, as good as Phil Sims was. You know, Ken Anderson was the first of the, quote, new wave quarterbacks in terms of the West Coast offense uh, with the Cincinnati Bengals. And he was incredible what he did. He helped the Bengals get to a Super Bowl. And so, but he was never a finalist. And he's now in the seniors committee, which is almost impossible to come out of. You know, that's one guy. There's one guy that's still eligible as a modern day guy. And I think hasn't, people just don't look hard enough at his record is Herschel Walker. I mean, what if you really you really look at what he did as a running back, what he did as a kick returner in addition to it, you look and you say, oh, gosh, I didn't realize his numbers were so good. There's can another. You count the, can you count the USFL? I mean, if you counted well, you the can. USFL, definitely. Well, and th- well, it's called, the you know, it's called the Pro Football Hall yeah. of Fame, even though, the NFL, yeah, even though the NFL, quote, doesn't recognize statistics uh, from the USFL, but, but even in the NFL, the guy had, you know, the guy had a heck of a career. And so a lot of times guys wait and wait and wait. And I mean, heck, I heard a number the, the seniors committee right now has a lot of players that were named to the all decade teams that not only aren't in the hall of fame, but some of them were never even finalists and made it to that Uh, final 15. So there's, there's some real good players that have been overlooked. And unfortunately it's, it's kind of the nature of it. But, and as I always say to some, well, how come he hasn't gotten in or how come he didn't get in? And I always say, well, who should we have taken out? Who doesn't belong there? And I firmly believe that there's no one in there that shouldn't be. And again, that just shows there's just so many players and so many teams that you can't possibly recognize, you know, all of them. And some guys just aren't, aren't going to get that ultimate honor. Well, Howard, thank you so much for, uh, first of all, indulging me on, on Bavaro, Sims and Banks, but thank you more importantly for joining us on Conduct Detrimental. I was 
we're going to obviously talk to you again, but I was hopeful of just having this like long saga with the, with the trial. And I'm, <laughs> I'm almost, yeah. uh, I, I'm feeling that I'm going through withdrawal already that I'm going to really miss this dispute, this case, this, you know, sort of journey. I mean, it was right. important. I'm not from St. Louis. I've never been to St. Louis, but it really mattered to me. It mattered to Dan and I'm really going to be sorry to let it go. The one last thing I'll say, and, and I, we might've just touched on it when we talked about disappointment and all that, but I think that aspect of it really has a lot of fans disappointed, maybe even more than not getting a team, but disappointed that at least it's not going to be public and make these guys admit under oath what happened, what they did, the stuff that we don't, you know, some of the things that happened behind the scenes that were in emails or whatever, that a lot of people don't know about. I think a lot of people wanted that to happen, whatever the result was, even if you end up losing, yeah. they, they wanted, they wanted to, to have, you know, those guys, you know, especially Stan Kroenke and Kevin Demoff be held accountable and to, to you know, to, to, to be responsible for the things that for the things that they did. And I think that that's probably where the biggest disappointment lies. Yeah. A lot of people were kind of, kind of looking forward to that, yeah. that trial, which again leads to that right from the start, as I said, that feeling of emptiness that, that a lot of people have right now. Yeah. Uh, ditto on that. I was looking forward to uh, being a local TV correspondent <laughs> uh, reporting <laughs> from the trial with my legal take of the day. Anyway, Howard, where can, uh, I'm, I'm sure people hear you on the radio in St. Louis, but where can our broader audience find your work today around the Arizona Cardinals? It's at allcardinals.com. A lot of content there on the team. And I'll throw in some general NFL stuff too. allcardinals.com. I, I also host a radio show, a co-host of a radio show on the weekend. Uh, right now, it's Saturdays. When the season ends, it'll be Saturday and Sunday on the national network called Sports Map Radio. So uh, check them out. Find out where their affiliates are. And even if you don't have a station in your city, you can always live stream it and listen. So uh, check it out at Sports Map uh, Radio. And uh, also do a Pro Football Hall of Fame radio show on Sirius XM. So I managed to keep myself a little bit busy. All right. Enjoy Arizona. I'd like to make it to Scottsdale one of these days. Well, if you do, yeah, look, look me up because here we are on this day after Thanksgiving. I'm looking out my window. It's beautiful blue skies and Oof. it's about 72 degrees. And I lived, in, I lived in Siberia for the past year. True story. <laughs> so Siberia to Scottsdale, I think I would uh, I'm going to sign up for that in the early part of next year. Right. Uh, Howard, thank you so much for joining us. I could talk to you all day. From one Hofstra grad to another Hofstra grad, thank you very much for being so generous with your time today and a couple of weeks back for probably our most popular episode ever until this one, hopefully. My pleasure, guys. It's been great being with you and anytime down the road. All thank right. you, Howard. Take care, Dan. Take care, Daniel. So that was Howard Balzer. You know, obviously, Howard does a fantastic job of breaking this stuff down. Dan, I guess let me, let me ask you this. So we've spent, uh, we've uh, overturned every rock, nook and cranny of this possible settlement. We did not really talk about with Howard and we didn't talk about, you know, in our initial conversation, we didn't talk about where this case goes from here. $790 million settlement. It was initially reported as Cronky and then there was maybe, it was Cronky in the NFL and then it's Cronky. What we've now learned from reports, and you know, we haven't heard directly from City of St. Louis as far as I've seen about this number. The NFL said, and they put out a statement, that this case is fully settled, 
It's just a matter, I think, and this is uh, from you know people, I guess, within uh, NFL circles, as to how that $790 million is going to be allocated between Gronke and the NFL. So that's that indemnification agreement that we spoke about at length uh, with A.J. Perez. We've sp- talked about it on Twitter. Dan, let me turn it to you. How do you think this indemnification agreement, disagreement, how do you think this gets worked out? Well, I, I don't know how it gets worked out, but I can tell you how I interpret it. I interpret the indemnification language as only covering you know, legal fees. All right. Any, anyone, any litigator who looks at the notion of costs, including attorneys fees and litigation expenses, knows that you're talking about lawyer fees and taxable costs, not damages. And what really hurts the NFL in this in this you know, potential side dispute is that the indemnification language is probably governed by New York law. We haven't seen the full agreement. We just saw the indemnification language in all likelihood it's governed by a New York law choice of law provision. And New York has some very strict guidelines for interpreting indemnification agreements. First of all, indemnification provisions are interpreted strictly and narrowly. Uh, they have to clearly specify the, uh, the indemnification obligation that's being talked about. And then a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned that the principle that uh, language is construed strictly against the drafter. And I pointed out, yeah, well, that's insurance contracts, but you're right. That's also in the context of interpreting indemnification agreements under New York law, because I researched that point recently. So if the the terminology is considered unambiguous, well, it definitely covers, you know, lawyer fees only. If it's ambiguous, well, then it is construed against the NFL. So I think no matter which pathway you go down here, Kroenke ends up prevailing on the issue of how far the the indemnification provision goes. I think it only covers legal fees, whether it's ambiguous or unambiguous. I think he's got the NFL cornered on that issue. But given the amount at issue here, which is less than a billion dollars, I think this could be fairly allocated. And he's likely looking for some contribution, if you know, definitely not an equal contribution. So he holds all the cards in, in terms of New York law. There's no question in my mind. Respectfully, I, I don't think it's as black and white as you make it. I don't think NFL, and again, I'm not necessarily on, on the side of the NFL in this equation, but you know, if you just told someone without giving, without having them look at an agreement and you said, hey, somebody signed a whole harmless agreement, right? And Dan, let's let's go with the root of hold harmless, right? Let's use Black's well, that, Law Dictionary. In every, every, every indemnity, you can hold yeah, harmless hold for on. like, they're like, you know, gumballs. It doesn't but, mean that but, you're responsible for anything beyond gumball. But let's let's just play it out. You said it was black and white. A hold harmless agreement, just the definition of hold harmless. If you look at, you know, our Black's Law Dictionary, which I used to have a little dictionary called Black's Law. I don't know if there was a guy named Black at, at a certain point in time. But it says it's an agreement that's intended to, you know, hold the other party harmless from any type of financial damages whatsoever or financial harm. Let's say you hold them harmless, right? Not necessarily damages. So, you know, certainly the agreement that was signed here is a hold harmless agreement. Dan, I I see your reading of it. Certainly that agreement talks about costs, doesn't talk about damages. But if you just ask NFL owners, I'm sure there was some oral conversation that occurred that said, hey, Stan, you got to cover all of us. Hold on one second. We haven't seen the whole agreement. We saw just that particular clause. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm not ready to say that this is black and white and Kroenke's all of a sudden going to win on that issue. You had 31 NFL owners who I'm sure had you know legal counsel that were advising them. And nobody, I, I guess, seemingly up until a couple months ago, thought that there was any debate with Kroenke as to this indemnification clause. So maybe there's more we don't know, but I'm not ready to say that Kroenke has all the leverage here. I'm not. I, I don't, I don't yeah. think that to be the case. 
Well, you know, if, if you want to get oral or extre- oral testimony, extrinsic evidence, I think in all likelihood they were talking about damages and not costs because why would they make a big deal over legal? They wouldn't. But, they but, wouldn't. It's, but it's the language they chose and it's governed by New York law and New York law, case law has very strict guidelines for how to interpret indemnification languages. You don't even get to consider extrinsic evidence. I mean, normally under contract law, if the contract's ambiguous, yes, you consider extrinsic evidence, but indemnification agreements are a special classification of contracts that are treated differently. If the burden is on the NFL to demonstrate that their reading of the contract was clear from the face of the contract. And it's not just an ambiguity that kicks them into this extrinsic evidence scenario. The New York courts strictly construe indemnification agreements. It may not be 100%, but the NFL has an uphill battle here to overcome guidelines under New York law. Well, how about this? I have a, a feeling, and it was the same agreement that you read to me, or that we, that we both read. Roger Goodell gets to decide what final costs are, right? He has the yeah. final determination as to those costs. So, you know, regardless of what New York law says, if you get to a court and you have to ta- challenge the, uh, you know, the validity of this agreement, you have to challenge the interpretation of the agreement, sure. But I think there's an initial battle where Goodell is cert- most certainly going to rule in favor of the owners here. There's even a world where Goodell was in the room where this indemnification yeah. was orally agreed to before it was reduced to writing. So again, I, again, yeah, I, I think you're giving me like a 95, 5% chance. I think there's a lot of hurdles for Kroenke to get over before he gets into a New York courtroom. So yeah, I'm, I'm not certainly not ready to, to throw in the towel by any means. I, I think the NFL is still still feels pretty confident here. A couple of counters there. Uh, the, the indemnification language gives Goodell the right to determine the amount, not the scope or the enforceability of the, of the language or breadth of the language. He chooses the number. And then there's the issue of what has come up in prior arbitration challenges, evident partiality which is a basis for judicially vacating an arbitration award. It's basically arbitrator bias. So the league is a party to a contract. What Goodell is a sort of direct participant in not only the negotiations and execution of that agreement, but he's, you know, the league and the other owners are parties to that indemnification provision. So to have, it would be like having your adversary decide the issue. And I think you, in my view, this is about as strong and evident partiality case as you could possibly get. So the, there's a lot of risk here. I don't think it goes to a litigation. I don't think it goes to an arbitration. They'll work it out because the NFL, at the end of the day, the other owners realize they got away much cheaper than what they had feared. In kind of closing this point, and we can, we'll see how this obviously plays out. We'll continue to watch it. I do think it's odd, Dan. I've been a part of several mediations I've been sometimes the lead defendant, right, where I have to have the big bag of money and there's other co-defendants. Sometimes I'm like the eighth co-defendant down the line and I'm not really at fault, but you know, I come with a little bit of authority. Let's say, hypothetically, Dan, I'm, I'm making up a nice round number. It's $100,000 in damages. Let's say there's a multi-car accident. They wanna say that somebody sideswiped someone or I had a construction defect case. It was like a multi-million dollar case. I was, I won't give any specificity, but I was one of the parties that was not really culpable, but I was sued in the case. So I came and I had very little authority. I had like just barely five figures in authority. And so they, you know, they came to me early on. They said, Dan, how much money do you have for your client? And I said, if you guys can agree to a deal, I'll agree to maybe sweeten it, put a little bit on top. I am not by no means being the lion's share contributor in this. But anytime you leave a mediation with with a deal, which, which I've done, it doesn't always happen. I know I know how much I've given. So this is an oddity that is not necessarily common uh, at mediation, that a deal is done 
but the co-defendants still don't know what the allocation is. That's not really that normal. So maybe, you know, obviously in a, in a weird kind of world, Kroenke and the owners are kind of like co-workers in a weird kind of way. They're co-owners. They're kind of in the same circle. So maybe they feel comfortable doing this. It wouldn't normally happen with entities that had no relation to one another, that had no personal relationship. So, um, you know, read it as you, as you may. I, I would think that Kroenke and the NFL are pretty close on their understanding of what it is, or they just have so much money, they don't care of what the allocation is. They just wanted to get away from court. But it is odd that they leave that room and they don't know what the allocation is. So maybe it's some secret agreement. Maybe that wink, wink, nod, nod that Howard's talking about is actually the agreement that, that has already been set between Kroenke and the owners. But to leave the mediation and defendants not to know what they're actually paying seems odd, especially, Dan, what is what Kroenke's like, yeah, I'm, I'm paying, I, I feel comfortable in a world where I might pay all $790 because the week before he said he would settle solo without the NFL. So yeah. I, I find there, there's something out there. I can't well, put my finger on it, but it is strange. Well, that, that suggests that he had some settlement authority from the other owners in, 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 the, in the league that there, within certain parameters, he'd be reimbursed a, a minimum of, of, of X. I mean, as Howard highlighted in his, in his interview, I mean, $20, $20 million or $25 million per NFL team basically pays for the entire settlement. So we're really talking about nickels and dimes here, given the, the, the wealth and the revenue stream that's generated within the league. But Or maybe Stan Kroenke felt comfortable settling this case, knowing that he was held, holding a very strong legal hand under New York law. But I can't imagine that they're going to go to war over this amount. It gets resolved. But hypothetically, in our sports law you know, universe where we can debate these things, I like Stan Kroenke's chances in prevailing, maybe not prevailing before a biased arbitrator, but ultimately being correct on being responsible only for the legal fees. But man, they're not, they're just not going to go to war over that. The NFL dodged a bullet here. They They dodged a cannon. They dodged a whole world of hurt. Had they been going to trial, they are breathing a sigh of relief. This side dispute gets resolved. I'm, I'm sure of it. That's, that's, I think, the takeaway. And, um, you know, as, as we're closing up this episode, I think that's the takeaway here. If, you know, if one side of the uh, table, right, and I'm sure the lawyers feel good, I'm sure the city of St. Louis certainly feels well. The fans certainly don't. But what's the NFL concerned about? They're concerned about the publicity that would have circled around this trial. Maybe they're not as concerned about the financial hit, but the publicity around the trial would have not been great. And I think the NFL dodged a bullet. I think they're thrilled with the deal. I think they're thrilled to pay uh, some combination of 790 million between Kroenke and the NFL. I think they're absolutely thrilled because at the end of the day, they cut a check, right? All, all those four points, no one knows anything about relocation. No one knows about any potential lies behind the scenes. So in that sense, I, I hate that this is the narrative that's coming out of us, but I, I think, honest to God, I think that's just how we feel that the NFL is thrilled. We cut a check. Yeah. That's all well, we have to do. Well, well, let's see if they could keep these documents out of the purview of the public because Jim Quinn is going to be requesting them. The St. Louis Post Dispatch. I mean, we're talking about public records. By the way, laws. shout out to the Post Dispatch, to Ben Fredrickson. Those guys got the settlement agreement yeah. before the ink was dry. The signature line read November 24th, and the tweet with that Ben and Joe Courier put out was from November 24th. So before the ink was even dry in the agreement, they got a hold of it. So that gives me some hope that these guys can these guys can get the documents before they destroy it. Well, it's a matter of what Missouri's public records laws are. are no, no FOIA gets gets a de- document back in one day. That's unheard of. You're, you're, 
Yeah, you're going to have to seek an immediate order to prevent the destruction of these documents because the settlement agreement calls for their destruction. Certainly, if the city has, firstly, Jim Quinn should send a preservation letter uh, on behalf of the city of Oakland. I think there, are some, there need to be some immediate steps taken by the media organizations to assert their rights before, uh, before it's too late. And, and, and these may be, many of these may be public documents. But anyway, we've had a really long episode and, and, we, and, I, and I know we've got to wrap it up very soon, but wasn't Howard amazing? I could listen to Howard's stories and, and have a conversation. He's one of the great conversationalists we've ever had on the program. I loved him and I want to have him back for something. I don't care what it is. He was, he was just fantastic. And we're gonna, we should send him home to some gap band music on our outro for sure. Howard was excellent, and yes, I think it's about time, Dan. Uh, we, we had a two-hour episode with Howard last time. We're almost there this time. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap on this. Again, for all of our listeners that were tuned on to us, you've left us so many nice reviews, and a lot of people in our reviews are saying that they came because of the St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit, and they stayed because of our coverage of anything and everything sports. So a big shout-out to all of our new friends from the city of St. Louis and all of our new listeners of Conduct Detrimental across the country. A lot, of, a lot of you got turned on by this lawsuit. So certainly it was near and dear to us. We're gonna, we'll continue to cover the indemnification aspect. Thank you to Howard. Thank you to all of our guests from the town hall. If you're looking for more on this lawsuit and the lead up in the history of St. Louis, we've got about three, four, five, six podcasts uh, dedicated to this. So Dan and I might have some future things in the works recapping. I'm not ready uh, to lawsuit. turn the page, Dan. I'm not we, ready to we, turn we have page. more in the works, Dan. We'll, we'll yeah. keep it a surprise for now, but we have some more, uh, some more projects in the works on, on this particular lawsuit. This podcast, uh, as a reminder, is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Head to themisbar.com slash con detrimental. Again, those guys are the best bar prep company in the world. How about that? Dan, anything else to add before we put this in the books? Just thanks to everyone who's been following us on the on the St. Louis journey. We've picked up a lot of new listeners and just stay with us because this this saga has ended, but we really are going to, you know, keep diving into the NFL issues, the relocation topic. It's not going to end. You know, we have the city of Oakland to stay with us. We really appreciate the leap of faith that you've taken. Please leave us some good reviews and just thank you for the support over the last couple of months of this saga. Dan and I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm wishing everybody, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and wishing everybody in our audience, happy holidays, Hanukkah, Christmas, and New Year's. Thanks for all of your support these past couple of months. For Dan and myself, we want to wish everyone a very happy holidays. Dan is on social media at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust. The show is at Con Detrimental, both on Twitter and on Instagram. And ConductDetrimental.com, where we cover all things sports and law. For Dan and myself and the rest of the Conduct Detrimental family, we will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.